Boy, isn't that fun? Now, y'all stand up, because we're about to. I know you've been standing a while, but I want to read a verse to you, and I so appreciate that song and um, the truth of it. Praise is what you do when your circumstances don't seem to stand a chance. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in the providence of God. Last week, we began a series that I think is so crucial, and I need I need four weeks to get this into your understanding. Now, there's too many things you can say about providence to, care, to cover it in one Sunday. So I want to, again today, talk about providence. And providence at work through the pain of your broken dreams. We're going to talk about Joseph, one of my favorite Old Testament stories. I've never read the story of Joseph starting in Genesis 37 all the way through 50. I've never read it without weeping. Uh, it's so filled, chalk filled with drama. I mean, it is so powerful. Uh, it excels anything Shakespeare ever wrote. And uh, so I want to read to you uh, uh, one of the most famous passages from that story that has saved my soul, my life, my sanity uh, way more than once. The truth of this passage. It says, but as for, you know, this is Joseph talking to his 11 brothers who had betrayed him. He says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God. Can everybody say with me, but God. Well, oh, thank God for those last two words, but God. God meant it for good. Now, there you have a perfect verse on providence. Man thought he was doing one thing, but in fact, God was overruling it and doing another. Then he says, in order to bring it about as it is this day, here's why God did it, to save many people alive. Now, I want to pray for us today. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we need your word like we need oxygen. We need your word. We need you to make it alive to us today, and we pray that you will. We pray that you'll open up the scriptures to us. And Lord, I pray this understanding of providence will be stamped on the soul of every person in this room so that we can live in peace and victory, delivered from fear and worry, and trust ourselves in the hands of God. In Jesus' name, can you say with me, I know? He's got it in his hands. Give him praise and you can be seated. Thank you, Lord. I want to just teach you the Word of God today. I'm going, to, I'm going to highlight the life of Joseph and then I'm going to share with you at the end three principles of providence that are life-changing. And uh, I believe God's going to speak to us today. Now, remember, I'm going to put it up here. Providence is the belief that God has a plan for the world. Is it up there, Lisa? Providence is the belief that God has a plan for the world and for our lives, that He's working in the, and that He was working in the affairs of men every day. All right, that's providence. God is working in history right now. And what is He doing? He's fitting things together to accomplish His glorious purpose right now. And then providence refers to his guidance and his protection, his control and his preservation. Remember, pr providence is provide-unce. 
Okay? So providence comes from God's providing. Refers to His guidance, protection, control, and preservation of our lives in order to bring His will to pass. That's providence. Providence says that God has an, an inexorable, irrefutable, unstoppable will that is being brought to pass in the world no matter what men do. Because as we just saw, they may mean something for evil, but God can overrule it. And God will overrule it. And God does overrule it and work it for our good. Now last time, last week, we talked about Ruth and Naomi and the providence of God at work in the valley of failed expectations. And if you weren't here last week, I really would. I'd grab that CD because it went like hotcakes. People are wanting this really lost truth. This truth you don't hear a lot about in the church anymore, but it's one of the major themes of Scripture, that God is provident. God is providential over history. And we pointed out last time some very important facts about providence that I want to just summarize real quickly, and that is first, the need for caution in how you interpret the circumstances around you. Really important. Many Christians interpret things that happen as indications of God's judgment or God's pleasure. If something bad happens, it's so natural for people to look at somebody to whom something bad is happening and experience or, or interpret their experience as they must be wicked. They must have done something wrong. There you had Job's counselors. We know you did something wrong. Fess up, Job. Job hadn't done anything wrong. But if something good happens, then we assume that that person must be righteous. Yet the Bible reveals that there are lots of exceptions to both of those assumptions. Bad things often happen to good people. Remember Job? Look at the first century Christians. Martyred, persecuted, stalked, ridiculed, tortured, sent home to heaven, martyred. But they were walking in righteousness. So the Bible reveals bad things happen to good people, and unfortunately, or at least to our perplexity, not unfortunately necessarily, but to our perplexity, good things often happen to the wicked. David watched this. David looked around one day and he said, this is too much for me. I'm watching people who I know are wicked, and it looks like all they do is prosper. I don't get it. And he wrote this. He said, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. This was shaking his faith. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So can I tell you today, just because somebody has a lot of money doesn't mean they've been blessed of God. Just because somebody has a big business doesn't necessarily mean that God's blessed them or that they are righteous before God. It says in the Bible, He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So it's not an indicator whether somebody is righteous or wicked, whether they're prospering or not. That's not an indicator of righteousness or wickedness. Providence does not promise bad things won't happen to the righteous. Please understand that. It promises that God will providentially work all things together for our good, which we're about to see in the life of Joseph. That's the promise of providence. If you're a child of God, no matter what comes your way, guess what? Life's not fair, but God is good. Life's not fair, and God never promised we would be 
insulated from the unfairnesses of life just because we're believers. No, we're not. But here's what God does promise. The, the providential goodness of God will make it work together for your good. That's the promise of providence. Now today we're going to talk about Joseph and the providence of God working through the, the sorrow and the pain of broken dreams. Now let me just highlight Joseph's life for you. What a life. What a story. What an incredible story. You ought to read it. Uh, read it this week. Joseph was the favorite of, of his father's 12 sons, his daddy's name, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the reason Joseph was Jacob's favorite was because of Jacob's two wives, Leah and Rachel. He loved Rachel the most. Fair or not, that's the way that it was. And through Rachel, he produced two sons, uh, Benjamin and Joseph. And the Bible also tells us that uh, Joseph was the son of his old age. But here's the problem. Jacob made a, a real parental error, major mistake with his, his 12 sons, and he showed incredible favoritism of Joseph. He gave Joseph what Scripture calls a coat of many colors, and he left the other boys to wear hand-me-downs. This coat of many colors was a symbol, a picture of the Father's favor, and the whole message in this coat, that when you are right with the Father, he favors you with, as it were, coats of many colors. There is a favor on your life. And this coat of many colors was a symbol, a picture of the favor of Jacob over his son Joseph. And none of the other boys got one, only he had it. And don't you know, he strutted around wearing this coat of many colors. Na 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 na. Where's yours? And not only that, but scripture indicates that that Jacob gave Joseph the easier jobs around the house. When you see the other guys, the other boys, the other brothers out there herding sheep and taking care of the cattle, we find that Joseph was in the house. He wasn't out there with them. And they began to resent this. And you know what? In the natural, that's what's going to happen when you show favoritism to a child. Uh, the other children are going to resent it. And they're going to turn that envy and that resentment towards that child. Scripture says when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and would not speak peaceably to him. It got to the point in the household of Jacob, the tension was so thick you could cut it with a knife. They began to hate this boy, hate Joseph. They envied him. And it only grew, and it began to broil and bubble up in this home. And on top of all that, to make matters worse, Joseph was given a dreaming dreams, and not just any dreams, but here's the dreams that he dreamed. He dreamed that all of his brothers were bowing down to him. And he was just like a fisherman that catches a great big fish. He's not going to keep it to himself. And he came home. And guess what he did? He told the wrong people about that dream. He got his 11 brothers together and said, Guess what? I've had a dream, and I believe it was prophetic. I saw all of you guys, hallelujah, bowing down to me. <laughs> Talk about casting your pearls before swine. And they said, Oh, really? Here's what his brothers said in Genesis 37, verse 8. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. So now you've got a total division in this home. So intense was their hatred of Joseph that one day when they caught him far away from home, Jacob had sent him out to check on them in the field. So here comes 
Jacob's policeman, Joseph. He's coming to check on the brothers. And they saw him coming at a distance, and they began to hatch the plan to kill him. They were going to murder him. So intense was their hatred. It says, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said this to one another, Look, here comes this dreamer. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say a lie. A beast got Joseph and ate him alive. We'll see what will become of this dreamer and his dreams. Now I'm going to give you a little fact of spiritual warfare here. God had given Joseph these dreams. He, he handled it wrong. He shouldn't have told them. He should have done what Mary did. It says she kept all these things in her heart and protected the Word of God, but she didn't go around blabbing it to people who could not understand it. But Joseph made that mistake, but nevertheless, the dreams were from God. And I want you to know something. Satan will always try to destroy the dreams that God gives you. Satan is after your dream. He's after the dream that God has given you. He's after your potential. He wants to stop you in your tracks. He wants to discourage you. He wants to disillusion you. He wants to take you down. He wants to lie to you. He wants to get you to the place where you throw it all in and say, I'm done with this. He wants to steal your dream. If he steals your dream, he steals your hope. He steals your faith. He steals your destiny. He steals your power with God. What Joseph's wicked brothers said about him echoes the voice of Satan. Listen to the voice of Satan. Look here. Here comes the dreamer. We're going to see what will become of his dreams. It was a threat against the dreams that God had given this young man. And I want to tell you, when God gives you a dream, you're going to have to watch over it. You're going to have to put it under lock and key. You're going to have to keep guard over it. You're going to have to watch and know that the enemy is going to come after it, and, and God will help you to keep it, but you're going to have to fight for it and not let the enemy steal your dream. Joseph came walking up. They seized him. Their own brother, they seized him tore the coat of many colors off of him symbolic of we hate the favor of jacob over you we hate what he has given you so the first thing these really demon inspired young men did was rip off the symbol of the favor of the father and they threw him down into a dry well can you imagine being thrown into a dry well there he is joseph what did i do how can you do this to me it says when they threw him down into the well, they sat down, broke open a picnic lunch, and began to eat. That's how hard their conscience was. But before they could carry out their murderous scheme, all of a sudden here comes a slave caravan of Midianite traders. And they said, rather than kill him, let's sell him. We'll sell him into slavery. And there he's a picture of Jesus who was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph is sold. They take whatever money they'll give him. They'll give them for their brother, their own flesh and blood. They sold him into a life of slavery, sold him up the river, sold him away, watched him get carried away. And then in one of the cruelest actions in the Scripture, these 11 brothers went to their father, Jacob, who loved Joseph. They knew, loved Joseph more than the rest. And they lied to him and they said, Daddy, Daddy, is this Joseph's coat? Because what they had done, they took a goat 
and they killed the goat, and they dipped the coat in blood. There was no DNA. There was no way to know that it was human blood or not. They dipped this coat of many colors in the blood. They brought it to their father and said, We have found this, Dad. Is this, is this recognizable to you? You know, who, is, this, is this Joseph's? And Jacob recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Can you imagine believing that happened to your child? Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces, he said. And all of his sons and all of his daughters arose to comfort him. Look at the hypocrisy of these boys. Eleven boys hatched a scheme, lying to their daddy, and they start trying to comfort him, knowing that he's weeping over something that's not even true. He refused to be comforted by his children. He said, I'm going to go to the grave to my son in mourning. And his father wept for him. And you know, they allowed Jacob to believe that dream for 24 years. Let me give you the timeline of Joseph. He was 17 years old when he was sold into Egypt. 17, sold into slavery. He was 30 when he was made overseer of Egypt. He was 39 when his brothers first came to Egypt and he saw them again after 22 years. He was probably about 41 years old when his brothers finally brought Jacob and Joseph and Jacob fell into each other's arms and wept. And they allowed Jacob for 24 years to believe a lie and to wake up every day with heartbreak. Listen, that shows the power of hatred. That shows the diabolical effect that bitterness has on every one of us if we don't stamp it out by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Meanwhile, I want you to imagine the devastating blow that this had to be to young 17-year-old Joseph. Think about it. All of a sudden, his brothers are pulling him. He, he, he was probably thinking, wow, the joke's over. That wasn't very funny, guys. But they take him and they over to these Midianite slave traders, and he stands there stunned while they sell him. Imagine the devastating blow. Imagine the pain. Imagine the shock being stunned, the pain in this young man's eyes. I want to assure you, far less has ruined other men. Far less has ruined other teenagers. It could have broken his spirit and turned him into a bitter, angry young man. Man, as a matter of fact, it would do that to most. It would give a lot of people a reason to be bitter and angry at the whole world. This was big stuff as they carried him away. The psalmist tells us they carried him away in chains. He's being carried away in shackles and chains. Behind him, 11 brothers, stone-faced, cold-eyed, watching this. Not an emotion on their face while I'm sure he wept, shocked, taken to a strange land, strange tongue, strange people, strange culture. But you know what? The Bible shows us this did not ruin Joseph. How in the world could it not affect you and damage you and damage your spirit and affect your soul the rest of your life because he had a very important key in his theological pocket. The one that I'm trying to communicate to you. He believed in the providence of God. I'm going to say it again. He believed in the providence of God. What does providence say? 
It refers to God's protection, His control, His preservation of our lives in order to bring His will to pass. Providence says, no matter what men do to you, I can overrule it and work it out for your good. Just because it seems like all hell has broken loose over your life, that does not mean it's the end. God is still in charge. Providence. God had given him a dream and he clung to it like a pit bull to a snake bone. Once in Egypt, Joseph decided to take a lemon and make lemonade out of it, which, which everybody in here is going to have to do in life. And he was put on the slave block. There he is being sold. A man named Potiphar, high up in the Egyptian government, spots him, sees that he's young, he's healthy, he's fit. He buys him and takes him into his house. Joseph begins to work hard for him. Joseph trusts God. He is not sitting off in some corner somewhere moping and crying and playing a violin and talking about how the world has been against him. That's not what he's doing. He put his hand to the plow. He began to work hard. He trusted God. And the Bible records the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Potiphar put him in charge of his household because he saw that everything Joseph touched turned to gold. It was the favor of God, the favor of the Father. And he entrusted to his care every single thing that he owned. And here's another promise of providence. Here it is. The Lord will bless you in spite of what others have wrongly done to you. Can I tell you that God is not limited to what people do or don't do in your life. When people wrong you, He'll bless you. When they betray you, He can still bless you. When they turn on you and walk out the door, He will walk in. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And God is able to speak over your life and prosper you no matter what other people do. Providence is always in charge. Providence always overrules the enemy. Satan never says checkmate to God. It is always providence's final words, checkmate to the devil. Providence. So here he is. He's being blessed. He's being favored. He's trying to forget his dad. He's trying to forget what his brothers had done to him. He's trusting the Lord with his dreams. And here comes another crushing blow. The Bible paints Joseph as young, handsome, intelligent, fit, and always around. Which was more than could be said for Mr. Potiphar, who had bought him, who was always gone on government business. So while Mr. Potiphar took care of state affairs, Mrs. Potiphar began to dream of an affair of her own. I'm so glad the Bible tells the truth about what happened to the real people in a real Bible. Because it says at least twice, Mrs. Potiphar made sexual advances toward Joseph. As a matter of fact, the Bible says daily she pressured him. Daily. Mr. Potiphar's gone. No one's watching. Hey, you know. But Joseph rejected her. You know what they say about a woman spurned? Angry and hurt, Scripture tells us the truth about her. She called her household servants, accused him of trying to sleep with her lied about him, slandered him. And it says in the Bible, when he heard, this is her talking, when he heard me scream for help, claimed Mrs. Potiphar, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. A big, fat lie. Mr. Potiphar believed the trumped-up charge and threw him in an Egyptian dungeon for something he had not done. Now stop and think a minute. 
I've been betrayed by my brothers and sold into slavery. When I finally get my feet on the ground and I finally get moving in life and it seems like things are turning for me, I'm betrayed again. I haven't done a thing wrong in either instance. But here I am being betrayed again. His life at this point could be summed up in three words. Here they are, rejected, suspected, and neglected. And maybe you understand one or more of those words. Rejected, and you don't know why. Suspected, and you haven't done a thing. Neglected, and you wonder what's wrong with you. He was rejected by his brothers. He was suspected by his employer. And now seemingly neglected by God as he languished in an Egyptian dungeon. And believe me, this was not Tarrant County Jail. An Egyptian dungeon was a hellacious place. There he sat, something he didn't do. Please use your sanctified imaginations here for a moment. Nobody would have faulted Joseph at this point in the game if he had soured on life and given up and said, I was just born under a bad sign. Life is just against me. I can't seem to make things work. So I'm just going to give up on God, on my dream, and I'm going to walk away. Your dream will be tested this way. But once again, he had confidence in providence. And that's what anchored his soul. Joseph somehow said to himself, I know that the God that gave me those dreams is still in charge. It may look like everything has gone crazy, but God is still in charge. It may look like I'm never going to get there. As a matter of fact, I'm experiencing the opposite of my dream. But I still believe that my God is in charge. And I believe he's going to work it together for my good. Thank God for faith. Thank God for the living God. Thank God for his word. I shall not be, I shall not be moved. That was Joseph's statement. He spent two more years in prison down there waiting on God. And then suddenly, overnight, things spectacularly changed. The Pharaoh had a dream. The Pharaoh couldn't get any of his magicians or soothsayers to interpret the dream. And so right when he's perplexed and doesn't know what to do, one of his employees, the chief butler, who had been in prison, remembered, oh, there's a young man down there who interprets dreams. Pharaoh said, really? He called for Joseph. Suddenly, they come to his cell. Hey, Pharaoh wants to see you. Pharaoh, the man, wants to see you. He combed his hair, shaved his face, put on something nice, and went and stood before the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And this man said to him, I've had a dream. Can you interpret it? He said, God will give me the interpretation. He said, after hearing the dream, he said, here's what's going to happen, Pharaoh. We're in seven years of plenty. There's about to be seven years of famine. You better start storing up grain for the seven years of famine because it's going to be bad. If you don't store up grain, everybody's going to starve. And he gave Pharaoh counsel. Pharaoh was overwhelmingly impressed. And he put Joseph in charge of everything in the kingdom, made him second only to him, told the Egyptian people, when you see Joseph coming, I want you to bow down. He put a ring on his finger. He put authority on his life. And suddenly he who had been slandered, he could, who couldn't see the end from the beginning, he who was in so many dark places, it turned in a night. And the providence of God brought him from the pit to the pinnacle.
Now at this point in the story, the chickens come home to roost. When the famine came, it affected everything. It affected not only Egypt, because the famine did come just like he said, but it reached into Canaan, and Canaan ran out of food. Jacob says to his 11 sons, those scoundrels, I want a few of you to go up to Egypt and get some, get some grain, because we're starving. It's okay, Dad. So they head off to Egypt. Little do they know they're about to meet their worst nightmare. They're about to have the shock of their life. There is no such thing in the Bible as it just so happened. No, the providence of God was a foot in the earth. It was moving. They go into Egypt, and before they know it, they're standing before this guy, and they're asking for grain, and it says Joseph looked at them and knew exactly who they were, but they did not recognize him because 22 years had changed his appearance, and he looked just like an Egyptian. But he watched them, and he couldn't believe they were standing in front of him. And what are they doing? They're asking him for food, just like he dreamed. He kind of toyed around with them like a cat with a mouse a few times, made them go back and play games with their head. And I don't know if it was vengeance. I don't know if he was just getting some things out. I don't really think he was, well, I know that he wasn't filled with bitterness or hatred, but he did fool with them a little bit and had a little fun with them. And, and finally, after testing them several times, Joseph decided to re reveal himself to them. And here's what he did. He was in a big room. Lots of Egyptian soldiers were there. And here's his brothers. He said, I want everybody out of here but these men. They all got out. And it says he broke down and began to weep uncontrollably. All the pain. All those years, seeing them again, it, it opened, no doubt, a wound again. It's just seeing them like this. He wept uncontrolled. They're sitting there going, what's wrong with this guy? What's wrong with this guy? We just want some grain. And finally, it says he decided to do it. And he said, I am Joseph. Oh, oh, oh. the Bible says, I love this. The Bible says his brothers were not able to answer him. Hada, hada, hada. Why? Genesis 45, verse 3 says, because they were terrified at his presence. Now, what Joseph is about to do, and we're going to close the story, and then I'm going to share with you those three points quickly. Joseph next reveals to his brothers what it was that saved his soul, saved his life, kept him from the bile of bitterness, from the torture of lifelong anger, from the trap of self-pity, from the destruction of his belief in God. What was it that kept him? Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Can you just picture him? Don't you know? They were terrified, he said. I'm your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. If he stopped right there, they're cooked. But he went on, and here's the miracle. He said, don't be distressed, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Listen, you sold me, but God sent me. You sold me, but God sent me. What a statement of providence. You thought you were doing me wrong and destroying me, but the providence of God overruled you. And while you thought you were selling me, God was actually sending me because he knew what was going to be happening in this world, that a famine was coming, and that he was going to use me to save many, many lives. That 
was the belief that anchored him. He was able to say, it wasn't you. It was God. Even the Psalms say, God sent Joseph to Egypt. Now, I want to be clear. He wasn't excusing their criminal action. He said, you did. You sold me. What you did was not okay. But he understood that God overruled it, and the providence of God prevailed. Now, let me give you three quick things about providence from Joseph's story first. And you need to know this and understand it. God's work is imperceptible. God's work is imperceptible. Amen? You can't always see it. As a matter of fact, most of what God does in the world, you never see it. God's moving right now in your life in ways that you will never see, know, or understand. He's moving on your behalf and you can't see it. His ways are imperceptible. The psalmist said, your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. Can I tell you today that God is moving behind the scenes in your life by His providence in ways that you cannot see or know? Paul said, even in our best day, we see through a glass darkly. Don't you know that Joseph wondered, where is God in all of this? Where is God? It would have been hard to see the hand of God working from the bottom of that deep pit that his brothers threw him into. Do you think that he was down that deep pit saying, Hallelujah. Oh, no. He was down there going, what in the world? How could God be in charge of this? This isn't what I dreamed. Don't you think it was hard to feel the presence of God in the desert heat as he walked in chains with those slave traders? Watching his brother's faces disappear, he didn't feel God all over him. It must have been hard to believe that God was with him when he stood falsely condemned before Potiphar and no one would testify for him. He felt all alone. And the silence of God must have been deafening as he sat for years in that Egyptian dungeon. Where is God? This is not what I dreamed. This is not what I saw coming. In that drawn-out midnight of his soul, it was his faith in God's providence that kept him alive. Where are you today? Where do you need to believe in the providence of God? Does it look like everything has gone haywire in your life? If you're a child of God, I assure you the providence of God has got it. Amen. Somebody found scribbled on the wall of a basement in Germany at the close of World War II these words. Probably a Jew, no doubt, hiding from the Nazis. I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love even when I cannot feel it. I believe in God, even when He is silent. Second truth about providence. God's providence is always redemptive. Can you say the word redemptive with me? God's providence is always redemptive. Well, what do I mean by that? God is able to take even the wicked intentions and evil designs of people and work them for good purposes because he only doeth wondrous things and every good and perfect gift comes down from him. So God only does what is good and best. And we need to get to a place where even though things don't go the way we thought they would, though people don't treat us the way we thought they should, we don't put our faith aside, get out of church, leave prayer, and walk away pouting, saying God wasn't there. That's a trap. No, believe in providence. 
Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though I can't see it, I know he's still in charge. I know that he's going to break through for me. And when everybody else walks out, my God is coming walking in. <laughs> Joseph's life is a perfect example of Romans 8.28 working out. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. Now, let me tell you what that verse does not mean because it's so often misunderstood. Romans 8.28 does not Everybody say hallelujah. hallelujah. That's what you call show and tell. God doesn't cause everything that happens. Please understand that. He does not. We can't take everything that happens in life and lay it in the lap of God. God's not responsible for murder. He's not responsible for rape, for child abuse, or for drug addiction. That's the work of the enemy. That's the work of the flesh. We can't take what the law labels a crime and lay it at the feet of God. The enemy does some things. Flesh does some things. Nor does that verse say that everything that happens is good because it's not. There's much evil in the world today. Watch the news when you get home. And that verse does not say that everything is going to work for good for all people. See, here's the joy of being saved. Because it's only those who love God and are the called according to His purpose, for whom He works everything for the good. You don't have to look far to find people for whom everything is certainly not working out for the good. Just look around you. They go from bad to worse to worse to tragedy. But for the believer, God says, if you love God and you're the called according to His purpose, I'm going to make everything work together for your good. I'm on your team. There is something active and working in your life that's not working in the life of lost people. That's one of the joys of being saved. That's redemptive. Thank God when I'm in a, a hellish situation, I can look up and say, I know this is going to work for my good. But if I'm lost, I can't say that. Amen. God can do a lot of things for the person who's walking with him, but he cannot do very much at all for the one who's running from him. I want everything working out for my good. So no matter what I go through or what people do to me, I can say, I know I'm going to get something out of this, and God's going to work it out. Now, finally, the verse, Romans 8, 28, does not say that all things working together for good as we define good. See, here's the way we define good in America, health, wealth, and success. Working out for my good is when God makes me healthy, wealthy, and successful. But you know that God doesn't measure success like we do? The good promised in verse 28 is explained in verse 29. These two verses ought to always be read together. What does verse 29 say? For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What is the good Romans 8.28 is talking about? Not necessarily health, wealth, and success. We've already seen successful and wealthy people are not necessarily right with God. He says, whatever happens to you, Whatever they do to you, 
whatever you experience, whatever pain you go through, I'm going to take it and I'm going to make it bow to my purpose, which is to make you more like Jesus so that you love like him. You have his joy. You have his peace, his long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith against such. There is no law. He makes you like Jesus. See, Jesus is the picture of what God wants us all to be like. So he says, whatever happens, whatever you go through, good, bad, or ugly, I'm going to make it bow to that purpose, and you will come out on the other side more like Jesus. Now, finally, God's working is also, in providence, progressive. Listen carefully. This is so important. This is where I see a lot of people. They, they get off track. The providence of God is progressive. It cannot be fully understood until God is through with it. Let me give you a picture. We're like a little boy watching a circus parade through a knothole in the fence. Here we are. Looking through the knothole, here comes the circus. Up ahead, there's a band that's playing beautiful music. Back down the line, there are clowns and dancing bears and wild animals. But the only part of the parade we can see is what is directly in front of us through the knothole. Paul said we see through glass darkly. We rarely see way ahead, and we don't necessarily see good from behind us either. We see what is right in front of us. So some of you are in the middle of the book. You're in the middle of the book of God's plan for your life. And it looks like Joseph's, like everything is coming apart. God said, no, here's the deal. If you could find another vantage point, if you could get on top of a building or fly low in a plane over that circus, you'd see the whole thing. But that's what God sees. We don't. He sees the end from the beginning. We can't. Our vision is limited. That's why you can never say something is good or bad until God finishes with it. Mm-mm, that's good. That is good. What is God saying to you today when you're in the middle of your trouble? Don't judge it yet. Give it over to the providence of God. I can tell you there was a time in my life where God said, Jeff, I want you to leave everything over to my providence. And I want you to do what I've called you to do and leave the rest to providence. And watch how my providence puts it all together. Well, when I first started doing that, I was looking through a knothole. You know what I saw walking by? Skeletons. But then I began to see life. I began to see you. I began to see a church. I began to see green trees and green grass and new life and a new thing. And now I can tell you looking back, God's providence has put it all back together. Now listen carefully, church. Don't let tough times throw you and make you walk away from God. Don't do it. It was only after God was through that Joseph looked back and said, wow, God meant it for good. We can evaluate a circumstance too soon. And waiting time is never wasted time with God. Can we stand together?
Are you like Joseph today? Have you been neglected, suspected, rejected? Can I tell you, God's providence is working on your behalf. Trust the unseen hand of God. I want to pray for you today with our heads bowed. If you can say, Pastor Jeff, I'm in the middle of something I don't understand. But I needed this today because I know providence is working on my behalf. Can I see your hand? Many, many people all over this congregation, half of this church. I want to pray for you right now, Father. And I'm going to ask the life leaders to begin to make your way down now as we pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, I lift up these precious people. And I pray in Jesus' name that you will anchor anchor their soul in the providence of God, that you will help them. I pray that you will keep them. Lord, help us to remember the unseen hand of God that's working on our behalf. And we know that one day we will praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Okay, um, tonight we're going to have life groups all around Tarrant County and Johnson County and uh, Parker County.